Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 is our text this morning. And as you're finding that, Matthew 4, 18 through 22, I want to begin by playing a little word association game. That is, I want you to think about what initially pops into your mind when I say these words. What images come to mind? I don't want you to think deeply over it. Don't want you to call anything out loud. I just want you to think about what comes into your mind when I say these words. The word politician. Now, it might be someone who's in your party or someone who's in the other party. But what comes to mind when you hear the word politician or specific or a specific politician? Or let's try this one, Nick Saban. That calls to mind some things, doesn't it? I said no calling out loud. People can't follow directions. NASCAR fan. Vegetarian. You see, whatever it is you're thinking, you have some thoughts about the characterizations of people that I've mentioned. There are thoughts in your mind that you associate with the various words. So let's try one more, the word Christian. You see, just as you had some immediate characterizations in those other terms, Many people have the same kind of reaction when it comes to the word Christian. They may identify us with those who are intolerant and bigoted. That may be the first thing that comes to their mind. It may be that they associate us with some of the extremists, those kind of groups that boycott or picket certain funerals, and they lump us all in together and say, we're all alike, even though we might vigorously oppose that and say we're nothing like them except in name only, they're going to lump us all together in spite of that. In fact, perhaps I should ask us the question, not asking now what others think of the name Christian, but what comes to your mind when you hear the title Christian? Your answer may depend upon the religious tradition in which you grew up. That is, you've been impacted and affected by your religious heritage such that your definition of what a Christian is depends on what you've been taught. Or maybe you're here this morning for other reasons. That is, you're, you're not a Christian. You know you're not. You came this morning because somebody invited you or you wanted to please some member of your family and You're not really interested at all in what we're talking about, so you have other ideas about what this term means. And so the truth of the matter is that images and ideas surround this familiar word, and it is varied even inside the church. Our idea of a Christian, even in the same church, is going to be varying. It might surprise you to learn that the first followers did not call themselves Christians. That is not the name they used for themselves. In fact, it was a term thrust upon them in a derogatory manner. If you go to the book of Acts, that is after there's been the persecution and the scattering, there's been some turmoil in Jerusalem, and so the Christians have to flee that city and go to the surrounding areas. And so after all of that, it is in Antioch that we are told that the disciples were first called Christians, a derogatory term that was meant to be something like little Christ or the party of Christ. And so you might ask, well, if they did not use the term Christian, if they did not call themselves that, what did they call themselves? 
And the answer to that is found in that same verse. And the disciples were first called Christians there at Antioch. They called themselves disciples. Now, it might also surprise you to learn that the word Christian is only found in the Bible two or three times, depending, of course, upon your translation. It only occurs two or three times. The word disciple is found nearly 300 times in the New Testament alone. Now, you might think, well, what's the difference? What does it matter which word we use, whether we call ourselves Christians or whether we call ourselves disciples or whether we invent a third term that might say seemingly the same thing? I think I've already shown you that we have images and ideas that surround the word, and sometimes those images and ideas are not exactly accurate. Now, I'm not on a campaign to get rid of the word Christian. I'm not trying to change our vocabulary. I do hope to show you, however, that a disciple is actually a much better term to use because it better defines who we are as followers of Christ. Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, of course, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, if we're honest with this text, I think we have to admit that it's always sort of bugged us a little bit. I mean, why would these two pairs of brothers, why would these four men so quickly and completely leave everything they know and follow Jesus? It just strikes us as a bit odd. It appears to be the first time they've met them. I don't met him. I don't think it is. I think John's gospel alludes to the fact that they have indeed heard Jesus and seen him before, but it seems at first reading that they're just minding their own business, and Jesus comes up, was there some sort of aura about this man that would lead these four men to conclude that they have just got to follow him no matter the cost? We have to understand that we don't know all of the details, but again, in all likelihood, they've heard him teach before. It seems at least one or two of them were John's disciples, and so John, as we'll see in a moment, has already directed them to go to Jesus instead. But I think a little bit of historical background will help us in understanding why these men responded like they did and what that can teach us for our own lives. All Hebrew boys in this day at about the age of five, went to what they called Torah school. Torah is the word for the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they went to this school for the purpose of learning those first five books of the Old Testament. They would begin by dropping a bit of honey on the tongue of the five-year-old boy. This was designed to show them how sweet the honey was, but as an illustration, it was used to show them, you're going to discover that the Word of God is sweet like this honey. 
And you also have to remember that some of these boys would have been very poor and would not have had access to this kind of thing prior to this. So this might have been the first time that such sweetness came upon their tongue. And they were told over the next few years, you're going to learn that the Word of God is just as sweet. So for the next five years, they would memorize large sections of the Torah. And then at the age of 10, there was a kind of weeding out. They only kept the very best students, maybe about, say, 20% or so, though I don't know that specifically. The rest of them, the 80% or so, were sent back home to their fathers to be apprentices for whatever the family business was. And those who made the cut remained. The very best would stay, and they would continue in their studies, now going outside of the Torah, and they would spend the next few years studying the Old Testament, memorizing and learning large portions of it until they came to about the age of 17. And at the age of 17, there would be, in essence, a second cut. And so only the best would remain. And at 17, if you wanted to stay, you found yourself a rabbi whom you admired, and you applied to be his disciple. And the way you applied to be his disciple is that you would sit at his feet, a posture that was meant to communicate that you admired and appreciated this rabbi and wanted to learn from him. And in response, the rabbi would ask you a series of questions, give you a series of tests, in order to determine whether he thought you were worthy to be his disciples. Now, the rabbis were able to be very selective, because in those days, becoming a religious ruler was the best of all possible jobs. This is what young boys wanted to be. This is what they wanted to grow up and become. And so the rabbi had the ability to select the very best students. I realize that that is not the case today. I realize that most young boys do not grow up wanting to be rabbis. We've had a devaluing of them. In fact, some years ago, our son Jacob, he's 20 now, but years ago he was younger, obviously. And you've seen those trucks that sit in the parking lots occasionally, And there'll be a sign on the side of it that says you can get 20 ribeyes for 30 bucks. Well, we drove past one of those, and Jacob noticed it and said to us, why are they selling 20 rabbis for 30 bucks? (laughs) And we had to explain to him the difference between rabbis and ribeyes. But in those days, they, they didn't want to grow up and become a professional athlete. They didn't have dreams of becoming firemen. Those jobs just did not exist in that culture. And so what they wanted to be and do was to be a religious ruler, a religious expert. Now, another reason these rabbis could be so selective is because they were choosing someone whom they believed had the capacity to become just like them, to know what they know, to do what they did to imitate them in every way. They were to learn their mannerisms. They were to certainly to learn their knowledge. That is what they knew. They would learn how they answered questions and how they responded in various situations. So that one of the highest compliments you could pay any young man in this culture was this. You have the dust of your rabbi all over you. What that meant is you were following your rabbi so closely that anything he stepped in sprayed up onto you. You have the dust of your rabbi all over you. 
Now stay with me. We are coming back to Matthew chapter 4 in just a moment. But the historical background is important to understand why these pairs of brothers responded as they did and what that means for us. You see, there was actually a special, a rare form of rabbi who possessed what was called authority. There was only about a dozen of these that we know of in the New Testament times that that had this authority about them. It was a recognized authority. A couple of their names you might have heard of, if I can pronounce them right, Hillel and Gamaliel. In fact, Paul says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So Paul acknowledges that his rabbi, the one he sat under, was this kind of special rabbi, in this case named Gamaliel. Now, to be regarded in this elite category of rabbis, you certainly had to be a master of the Torah. That was a given. But there was more. You had to have spiritual authority to give interpretations of the text. That is, you had to be able to not just tell people what it said, but to be able to interpret it correctly and better than others. Along with this, you had to have credible evidence that you had performed miracles. And this had to be recognized by two other rabbis with this same authority. So this special class, this elite class of rabbis, two of them had to acknowledge that you had this authority and these abilities, and they would then confer authority onto you if you met the requirements to be in this exclusive club. So now we come back to Matthew chapter 4. And as we do that, let's think back about our study of Mark's gospel last year, and specifically the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus certainly knew the Torah, right? At the age of 12, we find him remaining behind in Jerusalem after the festival. His parents and family have begun the journey home, and he stays behind. And what do we find him doing? We find him in the temple answering and asking questions, teaching the religious experts of the day. Jesus is certainly able to interpret the Torah. We frequently hear him say things like this, you have heard that it was said by those of old, but I say unto you. There is an authority about that where he is clearly saying, I'm giving you the correct interpretation of these texts. We see that his hearers are constantly amazed at his authority. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, we find the people saying this, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There was clearly something different about the way Jesus taught, elevating him to this special class of rabbis. That's also why throughout his ministry, people would ask him where he got his authority. By whose authority are you doing this? Who has conferred this authority upon you? And we certainly know that he performed miracles. There was credible evidence, plenty of it, of this. In fact, look at the very next verse from what we just read, Matthew uh, Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then right before these verses that we've read is the story of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying that he is much greater than I am. 
And John's gospel tells us that Andrew and possibly Simon as well were John's disciples. And so John is telling his disciples, there is someone greater than me, and there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then at that very moment, the heavens are open, and God speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So that's a lot of historical background to bring us back to Matthew chapter 4 and this calling of the first disciples. And what it tells us is this, Jesus did not choose the best, he chose the willing. These men were fishermen, so what does that mean? It means they did not make the cut. At some point in their lives as boys, at the age of five, they're, they're, they're going to Torah school, but sometime, whether it was at 10 or 17, they did not make the cut to be in the religious world, and they were sent home to their fathers to be an apprentice in the family business. This is the B team. This is the scout team. The people who had not the potential to be the top. They did not have the power to make it. John MacArthur reminds us that the great scholars of the day, I mean, if Jesus wanted a bunch of scholars to be his disciples, where would he have gone? Well, he would have gone to Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The most powerful men were in Rome. Jesus passed over the greatest thinker of the time, a man by the name of Socrates, he passed over the greatest ruler of the time, a man by the name of Julius Caesar. And instead, he comes to the Sea of Galilee, and he picks these ordinary men to be his disciples. There is not a single rabbi among them. There is not a single teacher. There are no religious experts here. There is not even a synagogue ruler. Half of the men he chose were fishermen, one was, in essence, what we would call today an IRS agent. One of them was a religious fanatic, a zealot, as he was called, which in our minds might be titled a terrorist. So why did Jesus choose these men? He chose these men because he knew his work in the world would not be based on their ability. He did not choose the best and the brightest because it wasn't their ability that was the necessary ingredient. It was their willingness to allow him to work through them. You see, people with a lot of talent, people with a lot of ability, would never come to lean on the power of Jesus for what he could do through them. Jesus reinforces this later in Matthew's gospel while he is talking to the disciples. He says to the disciples, the greatest man born of woman is John the Baptist. That means in today's language, he was the goat, the greatest of all time, because every man is born of a woman. So Jesus says the goat is John the Baptist, but then he goes on to say, but I tell you, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Now, how can he say that? How can Jesus say the greatest man born of woman is John the Baptist? However, you and you and everyone in here who's a disciple of Jesus is greater than he is. Because we have something John the Baptist did not have. 
We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us so that it is no longer about our ability. It is not about what you bring to the table that dictates what you can and cannot do in the kingdom of God. It is about being available to him. He chose you not because he knew you had the ability to be a great servant. He chose you not because he thought you had the ability to be his greatest witness of all time. He chose you because he wanted to work through you. It's not about what you have. Now, the second truth we learn from this story and throughout Scripture is that Jesus chooses us, not we him. Now, hang on a minute. I realize that that sounds a bit complicated, and maybe even at first hearing, you don't agree with that. I mean, we've been raised singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And so to hear that Jesus chooses us takes us back a little bit. I want you to understand that both of these things are true. There is an aspect, of course, in this that we do, in fact, choose Christ. These men followed Christ. They decided to leave what was there and follow Jesus. It's sort of like what we talked about in our series on salvation at the end of the year, where we talked about the preservation of God, that is, God keeps us, and yet the perseverance of the saints, we persevere. And you say, well, which one's true? They both are. And so the same thing is true here. Yes, we decide to follow Jesus, but Jesus chooses us. And that's the part we see in this text, and I'm simply emphasizing that because that's the part that we tend to forget or ignore. Now remember that I explained that the normal way this worked was that you would sit at the feet of a rabbi as a way of applying to be his disciple. At the age of 17, you want to continue with this, you sit at his feet, And you admire him, you respect him, and now he's got a decision to make. Is he going to choose you back? And if he does choose you back, if the rabbi says to you, yes, you can be my student, what a great confidence that would instill in you. In the days ahead, when you find it difficult to follow so faithfully, you can always go back to that, oh, but the rabbi chose me to be his disciple. At that time when you're sitting there working through your studies and you're thinking, I don't know if I can grasp this, you remind yourself, I think I can because the rabbi has chosen me. Put it in more contemporary terms, imagine if you have a son or a grandson who has dreams of being a quarterback. And so this summer, you're going to send him to a quarterback camp. And you might as well send him to the best, right? So you send him to the Peyton Manning quarterbacking camp. Because he's got dreams of being a professional quarterback. And so he goes to that camp. And sometime along the way during that camp, Peyton Manning himself pulls your little kid over to the side and says, Hey, buddy, I just want you to understand, I see potential in you. I think you've got what it takes to be a quarterback. Man, that kid's going to remember that, isn't he? Peyton Manning said, I've got what it takes. And when he grows up a little bit more and he goes off to high school and the high school coach says, son, I'm not sure you can make it. That kid's going to say, listen, you may not see it in me, but I'm telling you, Peyton Manning did. And his dad's going to share that story for the rest of his life. Well, what I want you to understand this morning is that the rabbi has chosen you. 
If you're a disciple, he has selected you to be his disciple, not because of your own ability. And he has done this in part to encourage you and give you the confidence to follow him. You say, well, you're supposed to say that kind of stuff. Well, let me let Jesus say it. John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Again, I know we get sidetracked with theological debates here that are indeed important. But while they are important, they sometimes have the indirect result of nullifying or or making us miss the point of what it's here for. When Paul talks about this issue, especially in Ephesians, it is done for encouragement. It is done for confidence that as we continue to follow Christ, we can always go back to that truth that he chose me. That verse I just read in John 15, following the fact that Jesus chose us, it gives us confidence to bear fruit, and the bearing of that fruit is certainly a wide range of things, but specifically it must include the winning of people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's real fruit. That is abiding fruit. That is fruit that remains for eternity. Now, frankly, most of us don't have that kind of confidence. And it is usually not because we lack confidence in Christ. In other words, we're quick to say, I know Jesus can save. I know Jesus can use. I know Jesus can gift us to do what he wants us to do in his kingdom. And I know he's using other people. But I don't think he can use little old me. I don't think he can do anything in my life because, you know, I just don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. I don't have the knowledge. On and on we go. And so what we're really lacking is confidence in ourselves, which is not where our confidence is supposed to be in the first place. Our confidence is supposed to be in Christ. And so we are reminded of the fact that he is capable. And because he is capable of working through us, we can have confidence in him. He has chosen you, and Paul says in Ephesians, he has preordained good works so that you would walk in them. Our confidence is not in our abilities. Our confidence is in the rabbi who chose us, which leads us to the next observation. Our primary calling is to be with Jesus. Follow me, he said. He didn't tell them where he was going. He did not tell them what they were going to do. Those things would indeed come later. But initially, he simply said, follow me. Again, the primary task of the disciple is to sit at the feet of the rabbi, to learn from him, and to ultimately imitate him, and then over time to be transformed into his likeness. Now, for us to do that, things have changed. We cannot physically sit at the feet of Jesus. We cannot be Martha or Mary, whichever one it was, that sat at his feet. He's not here for us to do that. So so how do we do that? Well, we have got to do it by saturating ourselves in his word. It is in his word that we learn about who he is. And that's to be done in various means, through personal Bible study. That's why we encourage you to read through the Bible every year. It's in small groups like the Sunday school class you've already been in this morning or the life group that you may be in next Sunday night. 
It is through corporate worship, coming to hear the Word of God. That's why we emphasize the preaching of the Word of God on Sunday mornings. We open up the Bible and say, what does the Lord have to say? It's not about our opinions. It's not about our ideas. We want to hear, thus saith the Lord. And certainly you can do this in podcasts and many other means. You can memorize Scripture. You can read books about the Bible. In some measure, we ought to be doing all of these things. Because if you want the dust of the rabbi all over you, if you want to be following Christ so closely that his dust is on you, then you've got to be saturated with his word. And get to the point where the word of God dominates your thinking and therefore motivates your behavior. Because the bottom line is you cannot know Jesus any more than you know his word. So to be with him, to follow him, is a call to sit in his presence with his word. Now, the response by these pairs of brothers is very similar. It's nearly identical. They immediately respond and leave all to follow Jesus. In the first instance, it is said that they left their nets, their fishing equipment. In the second case, we are specifically told that they left their boat and their father. Now, why do you think these things are mentioned? Well, the nets and the boats... That's their tools of their trade, right? That's, that's the equipment they need for their career. That is what is necessary for them to make a living and thus provide for their families. And yet, they are willing to leave their career behind. Everything they've known as adult men, they are willing to leave behind their career because now there is something greater to pursue, and it is the following of Christ. Secondly, leaving their father represents their most important relationship, the family. This was a family-dominated culture. This was a culture where you just didn't easily walk away from your father nor from your family. And yet they do that because they know there is now a greater relationship, yes, than even their family. It is the relationship of following Christ. And so they choose these things because they know they are more important. Now, we are not likely to have to make this serious of a decision. Most of us are not going to be faced with the choice of quitting our career for the sake of following Christ or leaving our families behind. Though we do need to understand that there are people that do have to make these choices. There are people, even in this day, in other countries and in other cultures, where to be baptized by faith into the church of Christ means that they have left their family. They are separated from their family forever because their family does not like the decision they're making. So these things do happen. But most of us are probably not going to face that serious of a choice. But we will face decisions on a regular basis, maybe small moments of our lives, when we're going to have to decide, is my career more important than Christ? Am, am I going to cheat in order to get ahead? After all, everybody else is doing it. And I'm in business, and therefore, if I'm going to be successful in this business, I'm going to have to cheat like everyone else is cheating in order to keep up? Or is my relationship with Christ going to be more important, and I'm going to choose to follow him? There are going to be times when perhaps some of our younger people are going to have to decide, am I going to let my resume stand for itself? I am who I am, and this is what I'm going to turn in, and if I get the job, fine, but if I don't, God must have something else in store for me, or am I going to lie on my resume to get my foot in the door because that's what everybody else is doing? 
Maybe it has to do with what you do with the money you make from your job. Does it all go to fuel your desires and the things that you want in this life? Or are you setting aside some for investment in the kingdom of God? Because I'm not sure there's anything that tells us more about what we really value than how we spend our money. And if you're not investing some of your money in the kingdom of God, it does tell me that your career is more important than following Christ. Disciples, genuine disciples, are willing to leave everything behind to follow Christ because we recognize He is the most important aspect of our lives. But we're not done. Go back to verse 19. It is not just that they are leaving everything and everyone behind, but they are doing so for a greater purpose. Verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They were called to be with Jesus, for sure. We've already talked about that. But they are also called to a new purpose, to fish for men, to reproduce spiritually. This is an important part of being a disciple. This is not just something that a few of us are supposed to do. This is an integral part of being a disciple. Now, again, I I think you would say, I expect him to say that. That's part of his job to remind us that we need to be telling people about Jesus. But again, let me let Jesus do the speaking. John 15, once again, by this my Father is glorified that you bear fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. The bearing of fruit, again, that's a broad term, but it must at least include the reproducing of ourselves spiritually. And Jesus says there, the bearing of fruit, including reproducing, is the way that we prove to be his disciples. Which means, and I I have to say this, it means the opposite is true. If we are not bearing fruit, we have reason to question whether or not we are genuinely disciples of Christ or we're just using the name of Christians as so many of our culture do. Many of you are familiar with the Great Commission. We hear it occasionally or regularly. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And then there's that promise, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission. And it seems at first glance that there's four things we're to do, four commands. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. But grammatically, there's only one command. Grammatically, there's only one verb in the Great Commission, and it is make disciples. The other three are participles that modify what it means and what it looks like to make disciples. So we're to make disciples as we go, and as we make disciples, we're to baptize them in the faith and continue to teach them everything that God has commanded. But here's the key. We are to make disciples. That is what every individual Christian ought to be about. It is what every New Testament church ought to be focused on. It is what every ministry in this church ought to be designed around, that our goal is to make disciples, to reproduce ourselves spiritually. Now, you are well aware that there are a lot of great causes and movements around the world today, and our younger generations are particularly getting involved in them. 
They see the suffering around the world and they want to get involved and try to alleviate that suffering, whether it's physical suffering or emotional suffering or in some cases sexuality issues, sexual suffering. They want to get involved and and try to, uh, to help people and overcome that suffering. There are a lot of causes that deal with the earth and sustaining the earth for future generations. That's why we can't use straws anymore. Right? We're, those are banned now. We can't drink out of straws because we're trying to save the world. And I'm not mocking that. I'm simply saying there are a lot of great causes and a lot of people are getting involved in a lot of great causes. But may we never forget that the greatest suffering in this earth is the suffering of those who are in sin and separated from God because that suffering is not just for a moment, but that suffering is forever. And so no matter what else we might get involved in, we cannot forget that men and women, boys and girls, need the message of the gospel, otherwise they are going to suffer forever. And we have that message, and we must tell them about it. Jesus summarized his own ministry by saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so if we are to be his disciples, if the dust of the rabbi is to be all over us, then that must be our mission as well, to seek and to save those who are lost. In fact, that's God's method. That's the way God intended it. I know we like to talk about techniques and programs. We like to talk about this ministry model that will help us make disciples. And again, there's some great things there. In our day and age, we like to talk about marketing and social media. What we need to do is get the message out there. And what better way to get the message out there than to post it across all of our streams of social media. But God's method has always been the same. From the calling of these first disciples until he called you and until he comes back, his method has always been the same. He wants to use you to reproduce yourself spiritually in the life of someone else. So that's, this is what this has all been about. I want you to commit to being a reproducing Christian this year. Understanding, of course, that God is responsible for the results. We can't reproduce ourselves. We can't save anyone. But God can. He's the one that's able. He's the one that's powerful. And he desires, this is his method. He wants to use you to reach others. Now, I realize that anytime we talk about this subject, the excuses are right there on the tip of our tongue. You've heard them all. You've said many of them. I don't know what to say. Nobody's going to listen to me. I don't have the time. And on and on we can go. Or we think, well, I got to take a class first. But if I take a class and if I get certified, then maybe I can be of some use. But the truth of the matter is this is what we need to do. Number one, we need to get engaged, or if you're already there, you need to stay engaged with the church. Studying God's word and worshiping with other believers, again, is the primary way we learn about Jesus, and disciples must sit at the feet of Jesus in order to learn. Second, be involved in people's lives. You know, a lot of discipleship is informal. It's just being with people. Now, I do not mean to be involved in people's lives on social media. I'm talking about really face-to-face, person-to-person contact with other people. And I'm not just talking about your church friends. 
Now, some of us will find this easy to do based on your personality. Others will have to be very, very intentional in order to make this happen. But here's what the commitment is. And this is a commitment that the president of our Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, has asked all of us to make. So we're not the only church doing this. Other churches have already done it a year or so ago. This has been out for a while. We're simply choosing it to do this morning. But here's what he's asking us to do. To pick one person, one person this year that you believe is not a believer in Jesus Christ. We're not talking about your church friends that go to other churches. We're talking about someone who, based on the way they talk and on the way they live, or maybe they flat out told you, they are not a believer in Jesus Christ. And you begin praying for them and seeking opportunities to speak with them. When you walk out this morning, you're going you're to receive one of these cards. It has two parts to it. This part can be folded. It's very simple. Who's your one? And it's got a spot there for you to write the name of the person, maybe, who's already on your mind. You just write the name of that person. You can tear that part off, and then you can put it somewhere where you'll see it regularly. Maybe on your refrigerator, maybe in your wallet, the dashboard of your car. I don't know. I don't really care. But put it somewhere where you will see it on a regular basis so you will be reminded to pray for and seek opportunities to share with this person who is your one. And then the rest of that card is a 30-day list of scriptures that you can do over the next 30 days that are going to help focus your mind on spiritual reproduction. These are verses that are going to help you get tuned in to what it means to not just be a disciple yourself, but to be a disciple maker. Now, we also have prayer booklets that go along with those 30 days of scripture. We're not going to hand you one of these at the door, but they are available in the foyer. So if you want one of these, all you got to do is go to the desk in the foyer, and there are plenty of those there for you to take with you. Now, frankly, that's not a lot to ask. It's really not. To say, I know one person in my life who I believe is not a believer, and I'm going to start praying for that person and seeking opportunities to share with them, and I'm convinced that if we pray for opportunities to witness to them, that's a prayer that God is going to answer. So that's not a lot to ask. But can you imagine the impact that would make in this church if 600 people in this church made this commitment to say, this year, I've got a one, and I'm going after them. But more importantly, can you think of what a difference it would make in their lives and the people they know that you thought enough of them to say, I want to pray for them, and I want to share the gospel with them because they're lost and they need a Savior? Now, to be honest with you, you might need to write your own name down. I mean, you may be here this morning, you're saying, you know, I know I'm not a believer. So before you can write someone else's name down and seek to win them to Christ, you've got to get your own relationship with Christ straightened out. So maybe it needs to start with you. You know, in our long study of Mark's gospel last year, we saw this rabbi. We saw this Messiah who has authority and is worthy of being followed. Again, it's not a matter of our ability, but our availability that we've been talking about. Our confidence is in him. It is not in us. He has said, I want to use you to win people to Christ. And if you think about the totality of his ministry, he really began his ministry by saying, come and see. You know, when people first got around him, he'd say, come and see, in various ways, but that's essentially what he was saying. He was inviting people to check out his ministry. 
you know what, some of you have been checking out the ministry of Jesus for 50 years. You're still sitting casually there, just kind of seeing things. But Jesus never intended us to stop with come and see. Because about midway through his ministry, he began to switch the terminology that he was using. And he began to say things like, come and die. He began to say to his disciples, if you want to follow me, I mean, it is a total and serious commitment. Take up your cross and follow me. He went from come and see to come and die. But then at the end of his ministry, he changes again. And at the end of the ministry, as we've seen this morning, he says, go and tell. We were never meant to stop at come and see. We were meant to move forward to stage two where we understand the totality of this commitment. Come and die because it's worth that. But then go and tell. Let me pray.